0: Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to another stunning, fascinating, insightful, inspiring podcast and vlogcast. So without further ado, let's crack on. And I think with a very important piece of news, Lynn, which I'd like to sort spend a bit of time talking about today, because it is so significant. And indeed, I've sort of heralded it as the end of chemotherapy. Um, Scientists at the University of Surrey have successfully reversed 15 cases of bladder cancer, which are usually considered incurable and untreatable in just one week and how they done this well by injecting the good old common cold virus directly into the tumor after a week they uh, took a look at the samples from the bladder and found that the cancer cells in 14 of the cases were in serious retreat and in the 15th case they disappeared altogether and uh, this has happened because they reckon the virus is causing an immune response, which in turn is killing the uh, the cancer. And uh, they reckon that within three years, so this will be a therapy. Actually, it's all known as virotherapy, which is any virus or bacteria that's harnessed and modified to treat a number of diseases, mainly cancer but also diseases of the central nervous system. They reckon the virotherapy is going to be replacing chemo within three years. And uh, absolutely fascinating story, Lynn, because there's a lot of history to this. It didn't just kick off now. I mean, in fact, there are already on the market two virotherapy agents. The Chinese got there first. In 2005, they approved a virotherapy for cancer. And the FDA, the American drug regulator, has approved one as well. I think it did it about 10 years after the Chinese. So it's out there, but it's been out there for about three centuries because it was about three centuries ago that uh, physicians first noticed that their cancer patients were getting better if they suffered an infection and had raised temperature. And lo and behold, their their cancers went away, or as the medicos like to call it, went into spontaneous remission. But fascinating news, Lynn.
1: But as you say, Brian, nothing new. I mean, Hmm. there was uh, a practitioner called Coley Mm. um, early part of the 20th century who was experimenting successfully with giving his patients viruses. He Mm -hmm. would give them, well, toxins and they were called Coley's toxins. And the whole point was to get an immune response, raise the body's temperature and that raising of the temperature seemed to kill the cancer. Um, We also see that with many other illnesses um we've heard many stories and seen some research about, for instance, the power of raw foods mm. to raise the body mm. temperature mm. and also kill uh, you know this kind of illness of these kinds of um, um, uh, intractable illnesses mm. so there is something about getting the body to respond to heat and of course yeah. there's there's a lot of hydrotherapy and other mm-hmm. types of old-time therapies that were all about raising the Mm -hmm. body's temperature.
0: Yeah, well, President Ronald Reagan was a beneficiary of that. he I'm not sure what cancer he had, but it was kept very secret at the time. But he had thermal thermal therapy of some description, which raised the body temperature, uh, temperature and killed his cancer. So, yeah, I mean, what is it? just just deal with Cody for a minute because it's so interesting and then just move on a bit because there's so much to say about this, which is absolutely fascinating. William Coley, he was a very bright young graduate out of Harvard and he was a, an intern at the Sloan Kettering, as it's now called. It wasn't called that in those days. And he was asked to treat a 17-year-old girl who had cancer. And don't forget, in those days, the only treatment for cancer was surgery. Mm. This is before. And this was back when? Yeah, this was 1890s. Mm. Radiotherapy came in in about 1936, and before chemotherapy came in after the Second World War, about 1947. Um, that was another story. We'll talk about that if we have time as well. But anyway, so all he had was, was surgery, and he operated on this girl, and he lost her. She died at the age of 17. He was so devastated that he made it his life's quest to explore cancer. And the thing that kept uh, catching his eye were these cases of spontaneous remission, cases where cancer just mysteriously went away. But the more he delved into it, he realized it wasn't such a mystery because in every single case, the patient developed high temperature after infection. And there was one case on his own doorstep, not far from where you were, a young lass, (laughs) Lower East Side, Manhattan. (laughs) And uh, Cody went to visit this chap who was supposed to be dead uh, seven years prior because he had end-stage cancer of some description. And um, there he was, alive and well. His name was William uh, Stein. And he had a tumour of the neck and he'd been operated on three or four times but then he developed quite a nasty skin infection which made uh, further operations impossible but the point was that infection raised the temperature dramatically and the uh, the tumor went away and so there we are and seven years later Coley pays a visit and um, there he was alive and well and Coley carried on as you say but he worked with bacteria it wasn't viruses he worked mm-hmm. with bacteria and developed his own concoction, which became known as Coley's Toxins. But you know, needless to say, he had about... It wasn't enormous because it required a lot of work getting the, 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 the bacterial infusion right. But he was still seeing a 10% success rate on cancers that considered incurable. Mm. It still wasn't a bad batting average for incurable cancer. And, um, but the, needless to say, no one was interested. He was disparaged in his lifetime and ultimately his work was forgotten. And uh, and of course we <laughs> then saw the rise of radiotherapy and that was the end of Coley until today. And I'll tell you what is really interesting about virotherapy. We're talking about the harnessing of viruses. Well, guess which uh, virus is particularly effective? Measles.
1: <laughs>
0: the measles virus is being used very successfully <clears throat> to kill off cancers again with this for the same reason it's raising the immune response raising the temperature and um, we mentioned this on a podcast a couple of weeks back now but i'll mention it again because it's so interesting it concerned the mayo clinic who's sort of a more of the cutting edge of 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 medicine to be further on the conventional side but they do look at lots of things and um, they were presented with a 49 year old woman who had end-stage cancer Uh, is a myeloma so it's a cancer of the blood and she'd gone through everything Uh, she'd had several bouts of chemotherapy she'd even had stem cell transplants nothing had worked she really had weeks to live and she had a giant golf ball-sized tumor on her on her face so the mayo was pretty much a last resort and um anyway they well i don't know quite how this came about i guess they were researching this at the time and thought well why not give it a go and they gave her this enormous vaccination of measles. And uh, in fact, it was a specially adapted, genetically modified. It was enough to inoculate 10 million people. So it was a pretty, pretty massive dose. But the point was this, her reaction was exactly the same as a viral infection. She started to shake, her temperature rose dramatically, and she even vomited. And within 36 hours, that golf-sized golf ball-sized tumour had disappeared. Within two weeks, the entire cancer was gone. And, you know, we got loads and loads of cases. I mean, virotherapy if you talk about phages, which is a, a really interesting alternative to antibiotics. You know, with the problem with antibiotics, overuse, brought forth the superbug, which is resistant. Phages aren't like that. They're living things that lock in to disease cells. And destroy them. I mean, the problem with phage therapy is they have to find the right phages and all the rest. But yeah, it, it's doable and it's possible. Uh, but you know, ain't a lot of money in it.
1: And, this is and, and, the and, and, and of course,
0: chemotherapy remains to this day the drug industry's number one profit center.
1: This is why I really fear for this research, mm. Brian, mm. because. <laughs> this is the most promising thing we've heard about cancer for a while. Yeah. Um, and simple, quick, yeah. and, um, and has so many implications about getting infections, managing infections, mm. but having them. So one of the other worries about it is not only is the drug industry uh, got a huge vested interest in keeping chemo alive, but it has a huge vested interest in avoiding getting these diseases naturally via vaccination. Mm. It's other big money spinner. And maybe there's a good reason for all of us to get measles. Maybe that also, and that naturally inoculates mm. us against cancer. Could be. We don't know. Could be. But I do worry, you know, injecting people with a simple virus mm. like the common cold mm. isn't going to make the... The drug industry rich, so we let's hope these Mm. independent researchers carry on. Yeah,
0: well, we you know it goes back to making sure there is independent funding available for this stuff outside because pharmaceutical industry pays for about ninety percent of all drug research uh, because they are the chief beneficiaries of that research. Um, But there does need to be more independent bodies who are actually there for. Mankind rather than just shareholders. So let's hope this does push on and all power to the University of Surrey and to all others who are looking at virotherapy and making it work for so many people.
1: Absolutely. Thanks,
0: Lynn. And now it's time to walk off into the world of wonderland. <laughs> Down the old rabbit hole we go. And it's all about. Medicine and its errors, blunders, call it what you will. Um, You know, again, it's a subject we've banged on in the past in the podcast. Um, Not that it makes any difference, but we do. And, um, you know, the fact is that medicine and doctors, wonderful people, wonderful things and all the rest of it, nonetheless are extremely dangerous things and are the fourth cause of all deaths in the West. iatrogenic disease, iatrogenic illness, whatever you want to call it, doctor-induced. And um, the reason why it's Wonderland is because it's a conversation that we never have as a society. And new evidence has come out which really just underlines this, and it is based on the UK, so Apologies to you guys in the US, but all you have to do is extrapolate the figures six times and you'll get to the US problem. In the UK, 11,000 patients a year are dying in hospital as a direct result of medical blunder. So roughly 70,000 uh, patients in American hospitals, I'd guess. And, um, and this is a very conservative total because it's the ones that the regulators know about. And why don't they know about them all? Well, because doctors close ranks. They don't admit to these errors for lots of reasons, not least of which would be liability suits against them. So this is about the best guesstimate they got, but they accept that it's low, 11,000 a year. And mainly it's it's to do with drug prescribing, but it can be all sorts of blunders that are taking place which are causing these deaths. And... um, if you look then, if you add those figures, these are blunders. If you then add to that the deaths from people who are given drugs properly and take them properly, the, 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 the whole thing explodes. Mm-hmm. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths every year from drugs that are properly administered, plus these deaths from blunders. And you, know, you suddenly realise, my goodness me, what a dangerous pursuit medicine is. I mean, if you if, if you had those figures in the airline industry, planes would not take off. No one would get on planes.
1: Well, and not only that, I mean, what they reckon is that deaths in America from, I think it's from pres- uh, correctly prescribed yeah. drugs, two jumbo jets worth yeah. of people die every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the equivalent in deaths from yeah. from correctly prescribed drugs yeah. and then the medical blunders it's you know it's shocking figures yeah. like one in eight people you know have some sort of um, medical mm. um, treatment that is a medical blunder mm. you know mm. that's scary but mm. not surprising when you look at the way the system is run
0: yeah yeah and it's i, mean, I think the trouble with drugs is a, it's, it's a lonely and isolated death and some will take the drugs go home die Half the time you know the drug isn't even fingered as the reason for the death, so that can often go unrecorded but you know look as as the as the people who have looked into this sort of do like to remind us this wasn't meant you know. It, wasn't, it was all a mistake. No, this is not cases of homicide here. People did their no. best and people died. We accept that. And it is true of drugs. I mean, uh, the, the drug, the, the doctor is prescribing drugs in the belief that drugs would make the person better rather than kill them. But nonetheless, that is what's happening. And um, no, my point about the Wonderland bit is just that, you know, we really do need to have this as an intelligent, rational conversation as all grown-ups living together in a society, and say this really isn't good enough. We need to do better and soon.
1: Well, and we're you know we're not going to have that conversation, Brian, mm. um, until uh, medicine is to some degree unshackled from the mm. profit motive. Mm. That's the big problem, and now. The insidious nature of the pharmaceutical industry is not only has it invaded politics with all of the uh, money that it gives all of the politicians for re-election, not only has it invaded government agencies like the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but now we know it's also invaded things like Google. Mm. Google now owns... Several, yeah, inf- yeah. affiliated, owns it, it several does. drug it in- owns
0: several drug companies, and uh, it, there's a lot of crossover between them and the pharmaceutical industry.
1: And now what they will allow mm. to be seen, they've changed their algorithms, mm. and a lot of natural medicine, mm. non-drug medicine, mm. is being buried. So we are, you know, what we have to be really about this is to keep trumpeting Mm. what's happening and demanding this conversation. Mm. Because you say doctors, doctors aren't the bad guys. They're trying to do their best. But it's the whole system. It's the fact that they are overworked. Usually, you know, junior doctors, I've followed them around as a reporter. Mm. And I have barely been able to hold a pen. I've been so tired when they are expected after three days of no sleep to insert, to Mm -hmm. do a very delicate procedure on a premature baby. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of insanity, this idea that a doctor has to be a superhero and a superman or woman is just crazy. And it can, and it, you know, contributes to the figures that we're seeing here, not to mention the, all the side effects of drugs. Yep. So, as you say, mm-hmm. a conversation that needs to be had.
0: Indeed. Thanks, Liam. Uh, those of you who follow the news and have done for some time, and especially about uh, dietary advice and what's good for us, what's bad for us, are going to be so confused. I mean, let's face it. I mean, in the 60s, those who are old enough to remember those times yeah, all things like, you know, eggs, cheese, all good for us. Then we had the rise of the low fat industry because all of a sudden cholesterol in eggs and the high fats of butter and all creams and all that were bad for us and caused heart disease or led to the cause of heart disease through the closing up of our arteries. And they now discover oh, that was rubbish. And that, in fact, dairy is really good for us. (laughs) And that it protects against heart disease. Uh, And also type 2 diabetes, which is, of course, a precursor of heart disease. And now they've gone a bit further again. They said, well, that is true, but only for men. Dairy is still a problem for women. That it can still be dangerous. That it can cause heart problems. So dairy is protective for men but it's actually dangerous for women. Um, in fact, they said that uh, there's a researchers over in Israel looked at this and they said there was a significant risk um, for women, which was about 80% increased risk of heart disease and type two diabetes if they had a, a, a diet rich in dairy products. I mean, it seems odd, doesn't it, that men and women would be different. They don't know why. Um, they think it could be because the, the sex is processed dairy and probably other things differently. Um, it could be down to other dietary or lifestyle factors which have absolutely nothing to do with the diet. But they are an interesting fact, Lynn. Uh,
1: very interesting. You know, and I keep wondering, well, is that down to the fact that, um, that cow's milk, is a very different constituent um, than human milk, and women are producers of human milk Mm. at at certain points in their lives. So if I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Certainly there have been some stories, some books, um, some cases of women whose um, breast cancer was caused by dairy, or the mm-hmm. dairy contributed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's several things to think about here. First of all, what dairy? You know, is it the homogenized, pasteurized, mm-hmm. manipulated, hormone-laden stuff mm-hmm. that's in most supermarkets, mm-hmm. or is it natural, organic? Well, you know, the research
0: is bound to be the common and garden sort sure yeah
1: now there's another question here too that's really <laughs> important to think about which is biochemical individuality mm-hmm. you know these days the most forward thinking integrative practitioners when faced with a patient ask to do a whole bunch of studies on him or her that look at Allergies and foods that they may not only react to, have an intolerance of, but also foods that are causing autoimmune reactions. Mm. So the bottom line is dairy is probably great for some men, but there are also yeah. going to be men where Could it's be. they're intolerant of it. And they're probably the same as with women. So mm. it's a really fascinating idea, Um, And I think it is, as you say, a debunker of this idea that all fats are bad for you. Mm. You know, fats and saturated fats are really good for you. Essential and part of most healing diets these days, ketogenic diet, paleo diets are including lots of saturated fats. So.
0: But that's that's animal fats and that's fine. Yes. But dairy fats, they're saying, is a problem for women. So, what would your advice be for women who are listening to this?
1: Well, I would say that probably follow that, mm-hmm. but also, you know, if you have, if you are perfectly healthy, mm. carry on. If you are starting to get conditions, um, as I would recommend to anybody, get tested and find out what foods you're being affected by Mm. there are so many great lab tests now that can really break it all down and if it shows up that dairy is a problem for you avoid it
0: when it comes to sitting all sitting is not equal (laughs) and they used to think that it was it didn't really matter where you were sitting Sitting too long was going to be bad for us. It was going to cause heart disease. And if you sit for more than four hours in particular, they thought that was especially bad and um, so on and so on. But uh, researchers have had a closer look at this and they said, well, you know, that's not quite true. Yes, the sitting as a couch potato, watching the telly and huddling up, especially after a big meal, is quite bad for you in the long run, that it's going to cause heart problems and all the rest. But you could sit for a similar amount of time in your office and it has no ill effects at all. And uh, (laughs) quite extraordinary, really. So it's not just sitting that that seems to be the problem. Um, So uh, researchers at Columbia University took a look at this and they tracked the lives of 3,500 people who were at higher risk of diabetes and heart disease in the first place and found that only those who were sitting for long periods at home actually saw their risk increase further, whereas those who were doing most of their sitting in their office weren't. In fact, those who did most of their sitting at home watching the telly had a 50% increased risk of heart disease um, compared to those who spent less time, but also compared to those who did their sitting at, at, at work, even those who sat for nine hours at work just didn't raise the risk at all. So why was that? Well, needless to say, the researchers don't really know, but they surmise that it could be doing with the fact that when we're at work, probably we're sitting better anyway in the first place, we've got uh, sitting upright more, but we're also moving around more and we're talking to colleagues and we're getting up and making tea or whatever we're doing, more than we would do it when we're at home. And um, the one piece of good news is that even for you couch potatoes who do sit forever watching the telly, is that just getting up from your chair every so often, even taking a quick walk around the block makes all the difference and almost completely mitigates against all that sitting. So, you know, it it doesn't take a lot, just be a little bit active, just to do a little bit of something, just get up um, every so often will make all the difference. Lynn, what do you think?
1: Well, and I also think there's something else here, too. Mm -hmm. You know, the body is so holistic Mm -hmm. that it's hard to isolate it and say, um, yeah, movement is, per se, is the only factor that is involved in heart disease. Um, You also see that people who are at work are oftentimes engaged. They're seeing other people they're involved in their brain has to go through all kinds of activity as opposed to just passively Mm -hmm. watching something. Mm -hmm. Um, So that ticks off um, community, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're surrounded by a community that they are interested in engaging their brains. And we know that that is one of the big factors for longevity, you know, remaining Mm -hmm. curious, engaging your brain, problem solving, which most people at work have to do. So there's all those factors too that may be entering into an issue that mitigates against all that sitting.
0: Right, down. that's an interesting point, which the researchers didn't actually pick up on, but yeah. I think that's a good one, thanks Lynn. We were just talking about dietary advice, how it goes, changes all the time. Is this good for you? Is that bad for you? And it seems to change on a daily basis. I mean, it's true also of alcohol and it's also true of coffee. And um, is drinking coffee good for you or is it not? Well, there's a new piece of research come out, says, well, you know, probably one cup cup of coffee a day actually is quite good for you. And it helps to ward off obesity and diabetes now why is it then well no one's been quite sure until now because they've discovered a new fat in the body now, i've put on my michael kane glasses for this bit did you know that the body has brown fat not many people <laughs> know that but apparently we do we have a brown fat which they thought was only found in hibernating animals and infants but actually we have it throughout our lives. It stays with us and it seems to be more round the neck. But it, this brown fat actually helps regulate the body temperature and therefore how many calories we burn. And apparently drinking a cup of coffee kickstarts that process. So um, it's as if it were a cold day, which is normally when the brown fat is uh, triggered, drinking a cup of coffee does the same thing. And um, the University of Nottingham did some thermal imaging as people drank coffee, and they actually used stem cells from brown fat to see how the fat was responding to this coffee. And they found that it was indeed getting stimulated, and this was in turn burning the other fat and was and uh, and sugar as well body sugar glucose and fat so this was helping to prevent obesity and diabetes um, One thing they don't know is would the same thing happen with um, s- things like coffee including for example caffeine supplements if you were uh, if you don't like coffee a lot of people don't like coffee for lots of reasons. Would, would a supplement have the same stimulating effect? The answer is we have absolutely no idea. But come on, folks, we now know we got brown fat. Didn't even know that. <laughs> so we're, we're learning all the time here. And isn't that wonderful? Lynn, I think, We've reached the end of the session for today. And I think it's been absolutely fascinating from start to finish. So thank you as always for your amazing insights. I'm Brian Hubbard and we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And it's wddty.com is the website. Go and visit if you never have. Subscribe to our wonderful magazine, which comes out every month. And um, we'll see you again soon. Great, great to see you. And we look forward to next time.